to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. If you guys have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your mobile device, uh, please turn with me to Second uh, Timothy chapter two. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, that is okay because there's a brand new Bible in front of you there, and you can grab that also and turn with me to Second Timothy chapter two. And and before we jump in the text here, I just want to welcome you back to uh, part six of this series that we're in titled Pillar of Truth. And, and as, we, as we've talked about over the last several weeks, all of us, you and me, we actually live in a world where we're, and, and we're part of a culture that has come to a place that without thinking about it, without actually thinking about it, um, we live in a culture that has bought into an idea. And this idea is actually shaping everything in the world around us. It shapes media, it shapes the arts, it shapes entertainment, and even has, has shaped our education, it shapes music, um, it shapes literature, it shapes the way that we shop, it even shapes advertising, and it even shapes how many people who profess to follow Christ, how they actually practice their faith. And it's an idea that's born out of postmodern philosophy. And you know, I realized, I've, I was thinking about this week, I've talked a lot about postmodern philosophy uh, over the last uh, few weeks, but I have not taken the time to actually explain to you where that comes from, and um, that's a it's one of those uh, pastor things we just assume you know what we're talking about. So um, I'm going to take a moment and just kind of explain to you where that comes from. Uh, you see, in the 19th century, as science began to make great, the, the greatest strides towards, um, towards, uh, towards advances in technology, uh, where there was just an explosion in, in scientific research in the 19th century, and Western culture in the United States, as a result, began to push back even harder against religion and faith. And it did so because, um, because religion and faith were seen as something different than science, right? They did so, they pushed back against faith in favor of science because of what they thought was completely empirical data. You see, what, 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 what they saw, most people saw faith as an intangible thing. Religion was intangible, and sometimes even people thought it was superstitious, while science was heralded as, as, as reasonable, and, and tangible and measurable. And it's, it's a real objective truth because you could observe things and you could you know, put them in, 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 in laboratories and you can measure things. But you couldn't observe and measure things like God, right, and faith and, and things in the supernatural world. So naturalism, uh, this idea began to flourish. This naturalism, the idea that, that, that the, everything exists in the natural world is all that's real and everything else is just made up, that it's not real. And so... And there was this idea that science and its precise measurements of things and, and, and the provable truths that it had, you know, those truths could propel mankind one day into an age of, 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 of prosperity and an age of reason. And, and this was an age that was to be founded on hard facts and real objective truth and that man was on track to evolve through science and reason all the way to perfection. This, this was the philosophy in the 19th century known as modernism. Okay, modernism is the philosophy that brought forth the idea that human progress was about to lead mankind into a golden age, that science and reason uh, would, would put an end to war, and science and reason would put an end to hunger and conflict, and science and reason would put an end to things like racism and greed and inequality. And in the same modernism, okay, this same modernism actually provides the assumptions 
for critical ideas like communism and socialism. Because both communism and socialism believe that mankind is somehow on a track to perfect himself okay, and create a perfect society through the application of science and reason. And science and reason were, were going to be the foundation of what is called utopia. People have heard that word before. Utopia. It's a, per, a perfect society. And this utopia would be made possible because of the scientific discovery and a man's ability to reason for the truth rather than faith. In fact, faith began to be viewed as an obstacle to this progress. Karl Marx said, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of the heartless world, the soul of the soulless condition. It's the opium of the people. Faith was seen as an obstacle to the modern world. And it was during this time that Friedrich Nietzsche, he d d declared that God is dead and we have killed him because who needs a God? In the modern world with science and reason. But then something catastrophic happened. Something catastrophic that shook the very foundation of what modern philosophy believed in. And what happened was the 20th century. You see, in the 20th century, all the hopes of modernism collapsed like many of the cities in Europe during World War I and World War II. The hopes and dreams of modern philosophy were slaughtered right along with the millions of people who were slaughtered as a result of communist expansion. And the false gods of science and reason showed their awful wrath as the atomic age dawned on the world. You see, rather than the utopia, modernism brought with it the absolute bloodiest century the world has ever seen. Modern philosophy failed to save mankind. And the response to this failed philosophy and the response to this idolatry of science and reason was not to turn back to the truth founded on faith in the word of God, but instead the response was simply to reject truth altogether, to reject objective truth altogether. You see, postmodernism, the philosophy after modernism was founded as a skeptical response to all forms of truth, religious truth, scientific truth, and even you know, uh, natural truth and even reason was seen as not an objective form of truth anymore. And it's from this skeptical response to, to the failures of, of modernism that we get this basic postmodern idea that all truth is relative. That's where this idea comes from. Most people don't realize that it, it, it comes from all this pain and turmoil of, of a broken worldview. So whenever you hear someone say, well, well, truth is relative or, you know, what's true for you isn't true for me. People didn't make that up. Okay? Nobody you know that says that had that as an original thought because it was not their own. Okay? It wasn't a conclusion they came, they came to based on the evidence or their own experiences. Whenever you hear somebody that, that says that, it's relative, that truth is relative. It's just an assumption based on a philosophical idea they don't even know that they even bought into. It's an assumption that comes from a response of the failures of modernism. Now, the point I want you to understand is that postmodern philosophy then, like modern philosophy, is ultimately doomed to fail. It's ultimately doomed to fail and be replaced. And we're seeing the fruit of this failure right now. Because the truth is, in a relative truth, when, 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 when relatively defines my decisions and my choices, when, when I get to pick what's true, we get to see things like we're seeing in the world. That's why we're seeing people rebel against every human institution. That's why the, the, the institution of marriage is being destroyed. Make no mistake, this was not about equality. This was about the destruction of a human institution. Okay? The world is becoming more violent. 
People feel more and more entitled to things that, they, that, that actually they shouldn't be entitled to. And in fact, the world is even turning upside down the notion of gender and even species. All this is undermined. All this is supported by this philosophy. All of this is supported by this philosophy of postmodernism or this idea that the truth is relative because what is true for you isn't necessarily true for me. I decide what is true. You can't tell me otherwise. Everybody is now an expert in their own truth. And if you think the world has gone crazy, it absolutely has. The world's gone crazy because of this way of thinking, because the truth that is relative is just creating chaos. But who am I to tell you what's right and wrong? But the truth, I'm glad to tell you, is not relative. The truth is actually objective. And we can know the truth because the truth has been revealed to us by God through creation and his word. And so the foundation for truth is, in fact, the very word of God. And it's the church, okay? The church is God's instrument that he has placed on that foundation to be the pillar of truth in the world. The church is to be the upright pillar that resists the gravitational pull of postmodern philosophy and modern philosophy and what other ever philosophy that comes to replace it. Okay? It's to be the, 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 the pillar that stands firm, resisting the gravitational pull of the world, standing firm, holding up the truth of God and the truth of his creation for all the world to see. That is what the church is to be. It is God's instrument to lift up the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of heaven in a world that has lost its way. And that is why we're doing this series, because you and I, we're the church, which means you and I are the pillar of of that truth, which means you and I need to live and act in a way that's appropriate to that. We need to live and act in a way that lifts up high the truth of God for the world to see. And so in the first week, we examined three letters of Paul to Timothy and Titus, and we began to talk about how we as a church are to stand out as the pillar of truth. And the first thing that we identified was, was the importance of doctrine. Doctrine is hugely important. It's a hugely important component of truth because doctrine is actually how we teach and how we communicate the truth. Doctrine is how some, it's not some made, made up theological word. Doctrine actually literally means teaching. Okay? It literally means to teach. And so, so we did, and so we said that doctrine is important because true doctrine leads to life. And the first doctrine that we discussed is, in the first week is the fact that the Bible is, in fact, the reliable, authoritative, inerrant word of God. The Bible is God's word. It's his own word to us, and it's sufficient to communicate to us who God is and how we're to live in light of that. If you don't have that, then we have nothing. We might as well live in postmodernism. So the doctrine of the inerrancy of scripture is foundational to our faith. And then in week two, we talked about how doctrine, if properly understood and believed and applied to our lives, it leads us to, toward right action. The truth of God's word and sound doctrine should change us and move us towards right living before God. Because sound doctrine always leads to right action. And then in week three, we talked about how that right action should cause us to stand in stark contrast to the rest of the world. That the Christ followers, we should be the most loving and kind and patient and generous and obedient and selfless people in the entire world. Our action should cause us to stand out as a beacon of hope 
in a world of darkness. And then week four, we talked about how the idea that we talked about an idea that connects all these together, which is godliness. And godliness is simply a heart that's centered on God that leads to a life that's centered on God. And godliness comes from sound doctrine. True doctrine leads to godliness, and godliness is expressed in right action that leads a believer to live a life that's far and away different from the rest of the world. And then last week we talked about the importance of the fruit that comes out of godliness, and that fruit is self-control. Self-control is, is the gift that God gives us as he begins to sanctify us. It's the appropriate response on our part to the work that the Holy Spirit's doing inside of us. You see, Jesus or God justified us through Christ and we respond to that justification through repentance and faith. But then the Holy Spirit comes to work inside us and we respond to that work through self-control. Self-control helps us to grow as we learn to fight off sin and temptation. It helps us to become stronger parts of the church, which is the pillar of Truth. Now today, there's a text in 2 Timothy that we're going to look at that, that actually helps to paint a picture about how all these things work together, okay, and what it means to be the pillar of truth. And in this text, we're going to, we're going to find a particular piece of practical advice that will help us to all grow in, in every area that we've talked about so far. It will help us to, uh, with respect to doctrine. It's going to help us with respect to right action. It will help us with respect to uh, standing in sharp contrast to the rest of the world. It's going to help us with godliness and even self-control. And this is a super, super simple idea. I'm not going to tell you it's easy, though. It's a simple idea, and it's an important idea. So, so turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, chapter two and we're going to begin reading in verse 14. Um, but before we jump in there, let me just kind of tell you what's happening here. This is the very last letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament. And this is a letter written by Paul during his final imprisonment just before he was executed. Paul was, was arrested once before, released, and then arrested again under Nero Caesar. And he was, he was condemned to death and he was executed shortly after that. And uh, the whole reason why he wrote this letter is because Nero Caesar was the emperor of Rome. And under his reign, Christians were being, beginning to be persecuted at, at, a, at an astonishing rate. And Timothy, who was in a Roman city of Ephesus, was a, under a great deal of pressure at the time. Because Christians were being arrested and they were being executed. And so many professing Christians were actually beginning to fall away from the faith. And many people who claimed to be Christians began to be false teachers who were pe preaching a compromised gospel in order to not get in trouble with the Roman government. They were changing the whole nature of the gospel so it'd be compatible with their governmental society. Now think about this. It seems like the entire world is turned against the Christian faith. And many uh, within the church are beginning to turn away from these, these true doctrines of the church. And they start following false doctrine, which leads into actions that are not right before God. And it causes the church now to look more and more like the rest of the world. I don't know about you, but if you think about this, I mean, if we think that being a Christian is hard in our culture, what must it have been like back then? And so Paul writes from prison to Timothy to encourage him to strengthen him. Paul knows he's going to die, but he still writes to strengthen him and to remind him of the truth because he knows Timothy is discouraged, right? And Timothy is worried and he's even probably doubting. He's doubting, you know, his calling as a pastor. I can identify with that. He's doubting with his call as a pastor. He's doubting with his, with his strength to continue on. And it seems like everybody in the church is leaving. It seems like the church is falling apart around him. 
And so in this letter, he says to Timothy, Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He says to Timothy, let the grace of God strengthen you and and continue to do what you're called to do and preach to others what you have learned so that they can turn and preach others because that's how the gospel gets spread. That's how the truth gets spread. It is through faithfully teaching true doctrine. And then he says, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Probably not the words I would want to hear in a letter. But this is important because I imagine that at this time that the temptation to run away from suffering and persecution would have been really strong. Because it's easy to be a Christian. It's easy to have faith when things are good, when no one's calling for your head. It's easy to be a Christian when it seems like everybody in the country is all going the same direction. It's easy to be the Christian when it seems like the Supreme Court is upholding your faith and your beliefs. It's easy to shout the name of Jesus out and worship him only, worship him openly when you're not being hunted down. But when things get hard and the pain becomes real, it's tougher to stand your ground. But but Paul says to Timothy, I know that it's hard, okay? But you need to share your faith, share in suffering and stand your ground and take your lumps, Timothy, as a good soldier of Christ. Others will, will turn and run when the battle gets hard, but you... Timothy, a true believer, need to stand your ground doing what you are supposed to do. Teaching sound doctrine, living right action, standing in contrast to the rest of the world, living a godly life focused on self-control. Timothy, life is absolutely hard right now, but you need to stand as a pillar of truth doing what you need to do for the kingdom of God. And so then with that understanding and in that context, let's take a look at this passage. It begins in verse 14. And what we're going to do here is I'm just going to read through this entire text and then uh, we're going to come back and unpack it and, and look at the details. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 14, Paul says, remind them. And so understand he, he, he's talking to the church, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has No need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenus and Philetus, who have swerved from the faith, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be vessels for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions, 
and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponent with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now this uh, text right here, as with so many others, um, there's so much to talk about. In fact, there's a lot of theology in this one passage here. And unlike the rest of the Bible, we can, we can take the text and we can do a whole sermon series on this pas- passage alone. But in this text, there's a number of ideas that reinforce all that we have talked about so far. And in this text, there's something that we all need to learn and that we all need to master. And so let's, let's unpack this here. Looking at verse 14, it says, remind them. Now again, he's talking to those in the church. Okay, he's talking about believers. He says, remind them of these things. What things? Okay, well, in the previous passage, he talks about the gospel and the need for sound doctrine and remaining faithful. Okay, and so he charges them. He says, and said, he said, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins hearers. You see, during this time, there's a lot of discussion about faith in the light of what's happening around them. And this created a lot of discussion by false teachers. They were spreading false doctrines in the church and they were creating arguments around culture and current events that were leading people astray. Now, Paul says in verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Paul tells Timothy that he is to stand his ground in the way that he is to stand his ground and prove that he is in fact in the truth and that he is actually teaching sound life-giving doctrine is by rightly handling the word of truth. Now, this word handling can actually be translated as dividing, okay? That he is to rightly divide the word of truth. And the idea is, is that, that you're cutting something. And it demonstrates right, that, that he's, he's actually approved by God himself. Isn't quarreling and fighting, but actually precisely teaching the word of truth. Instead of, he's, he's to handle with precision the word of God. He's to accurately take it apart and accurately interpret it and accurately teach it and apply the word of God. And he is to teach sound doctrine that comes not from his own imagination and not from his culture and not from his surroundings, but from the word of God itself by properly handling the text. And so Paul says, but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. You see, when discussions of doctrine and theology move away from the foundation of the word of God and into the nebulous ideas of of postmodern culture or philosophy or popularity or feelings or even personal experiences, these discussions can lead to an ungodliness. Now, what's ungodliness? Well, we talked about in our discussion what godliness was. Godliness is a a heart centered on God and a life centered on God. Godliness is a heart that's centered on God that leads to a life that's centered on God. And so ungodliness would be then the opposite of that. So doctrine and theology that moves away from the rock solid foundation of the word of God and embraces some other authority such as culture or philosophy or science or popularity, those teachings will lead more and more people toward ungodliness. They would lead their hearts to be centered on something other than God. They will lead their lives to be centered on something other than God. That is the fruit 
of false teaching. In fact, recently, okay, I listened to a debate between a conservative evangelical scholar and a bishop in the Episcopal Church, and they were debating the question, is homosexuality compatible with the Christian faith? And the evangelical scholar came back to the scriptures over and over again and affirmed what, that they were his authority and that the word of God was the foundation of truth, while the, <clears throat> the bishop of the Episcopal Church made reference to culture and history and feelings and experience. And in fact, he even denied verbally that the Bible is inerrant and went so far to say that the Bible isn't even really God's word. Word. He said, the Bible's not the word of God. The word of God comes to you as you hear the words out of the Bible, which is really strange. And, and it's from this postmodern perspective that he couldn't even believe that God had condemned anyone for any of their lifestyles. And he even rejected the God that's painted in the Old Testament. You see, when you disconnect your faith from the rock-solid foundation of the truth, which is the word of God, you end up with false doctrine. And Paul says, this false doctrine spreads like gangrene. And this is a graphic depiction, okay? But, but it's really accurate because false doctrine is infectious and it's contagious and it spreads rapidly and it's really very destructive, Hey, remember, true doctrine leads to life. False doctrine leads to death. That's why, you know, if you get gangrene in a part of your physical body and you go to the doctor, they have to cut off the infected parts. It's a deadly infection. And it's the same way with false doctrine and those who teach false doctrine. And Paul, in, in this text, identifies a couple of false teachers. And he says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who, were, who have swerved from the, from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened and they're upsetting the faith of some. You see, at the time, people were expecting the resurrection of the dead, that it would happen soon. And, and, and they were expecting Christ to return, you know, right away, like, like we continue to do, right? And, and, and when it didn't happen right away, when things began to go really bad for the Christians, some false teachers began to theorize that the resurrection had already happened, but it wasn't a physical resurrection. It was a spiritual resurrection, it was a spiritual resurrection rather than a physical one, which changes the entire nature of the gospel. The teaching is, is actually a heresy because it changes the nature of the gospel and it changes the nature of the way that people actually live and behave in light of that. Because this teaching is not grounded in scripture, but it's instead it's grounded in a dualistic Greek philosophy of the time. Okay, which says, and, and Greek philosophy basically had a simple idea. is that, that, uh, that the material world is bad. Okay. The material world and everything in it, you know, including my body, is bad. And then the spiritual world, that's good. That's the part that includes my soul. So everything in the material world is bad. Everything in the spiritual world is good. And what, what was being taught is that since you are in Christ, your spirit has been raised from the dead. You have a new spiritual life, which is actually true, okay? Because you, you, when you give your life to Christ, you become spiritually alive. But the idea... For them, stop there. there. There was no physical resurrection. That there was not an actual physical resurrection because the material world is actually bad. And that teaching further went that since the material world is bad, and because it's going to be burned up anyway, and because you have this spiritual resurrection, you know, through Christ, you're going to one day ex escape this physical world. Then what happens in this physical world really doesn't matter. And how you live your life is really of no consequence because you've already escaped the physical world through a spiritual resurrection. And then Paul says, but God confirmed, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his and listen, let 
everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. He says that, uh, you know, that's not how it is, okay? God knows who belongs to him. And those who belong to him will, will, be, will bear this seal. And the seal is that they're going to bear, bear is to depart from, to move away from, to escape from iniquity. Those who belong to the Lord, their lives change here and now. Why? Because sound doctrine leads to right action. False doctrine leads people to stay like they are. And to live just the way they are like the rest of the world. Sound doctrine, if received and believed, will lead people to change. Their behaviors will change. And they will depart from iniquity. You will know a tree by its fruit, Jesus says. You will know a believer by his action. If someone embraces iniquity and sin and they, and they don't have any heart to change, then they don't belong to God. But if someone departs from iniquity and then they bear the, bear the seal of God, if they depart and repent, they bear the seal of God. And it's the same way with the church. Paul says in verse 20, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable uh, use and some for dishonorable use. Therefore, now pay attention here. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful for the master of the house, ready for every good work. Here it is. The church is the house of God. Okay, that's what he's talking about. And in the house, there are those who actually belong to him. And there are those who don't. There are true believers. And there are also false converts in the church. That is a stark reality. And those who belong to him will shine and be useful and do the things that God has set for them to do. And their lives and their actions will be in sharp contrast with the rest of the world. While those who don't belong to him will not be useful to God. And the fruit of their lives will reflect that. That's something we have to absolutely come to terms with. But here is the thing that you have to understand. People can change. Paul says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of what is dishonorable, if he repents and turns away from his sin and actually moves to faith in Christ, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Now, notice the analogy here. Okay, honorable vessels versus, you know, those who are not. Honorable vessels are made of precious metals. Dishonorables are made out of wood and clay. And Paul says dishonorable vessels can be cleansed and become honorable. You have to understand what that means. It means when you're cleansed, when you repent of sin, you put your faith in Christ, you are fundamentally changed. It's a radical transformation. You are completely changed into something new. It's like going from common wood or clay to be magically becoming a precious metal. That's the analogy. It's a miraculous change. You become completely different in nature. Paul says, the old is gone, the new has come. And because of that change, the true believer is set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. True doctrine, if believed, leads, leads to life. And that life leads to a fundamental change in our lives. It leads to a fundamental change in our nature. And as a result of that, okay, is, is visible. It's a visible change in the lives that we live as we depart from iniquity and get busy doing the, the work that God's calling us to do. True doctrine leads to right action. And that right action is in contrast to the rest of the world. False doctrine leads to actions that lead to death and are just like the rest of the world. True doctrine leads someone to depart from iniquity. False doctrine leads them to embrace it. It's as simple as that. 
And then, and then getting to the point, he says, he says, so in verse 22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, love, I mean, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, this is really the heart of the message today uh, because in this verse, there's a practical step that all Christians need to master. It's a practical step that all Christians, you and me, all Christians need to master. Because if we will master this one thing, our entire lives will instantly be better. We will have an exponential increase in our ability to walk in self-control and we will be able to stand out as bright lights in a dark world. We will immediately stand in stark contrast to the rest of the world if we'll master this one thing that Paul's talking about here. This one thing will change everything. It'll change everything in your life. Okay? It will give you closer intimacy to God. This one thing will make you a better husband. This one thing will make you a better wife. This one thing will make you a better parent. It'll make you a better neighbor. It'll make you a better community member. It'll make you a better Christ follower. Okay? And it will better equip you to be a pillar of truth that God is calling you to be. And it is a simple step to take. I didn't say easy. It's a simple step to take. And the step is to flee. Flee run away from, escape from, get away from, flee youthful passions. You see, right here, this is the step that if you will take this step and continue to take this step, it will change your life. If you will flee from youthful passions. Now, what's Paul talking about here? Okay, what does he mean by youthful passions? Well, the word that Paul uses here actually in the Greek literally means lusts, okay? So what he's saying is you need to flee from youthful lust. Now, I don't think that I need to explain to you all what lust is, okay? But what Paul's talking about here is more than just sexual lust, okay? I mean, though he does mean, mean that because in, in, in another letter, Paul exhorts his followers to flee from sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, okay? okay they're, they are to, to flee sexual lust, but Paul's saying more than just, than just flee from sexual sin in this text. He's saying we need to flee from Anything that we would lust for, because people lust for a lot of things. People lust for power, because power is very seductive. Okay? I mean, who doesn't want more power? Who doesn't want more control in their life, right? People lust for control. People lust for fame and popularity. We live in America, which is like the capital of that, right? I mean, American idol, right? People lust for attention, People lust to be right all the time. There's some people that just can't ever be wrong. Okay? Everybody wants to be right from all the time. And some people, it's, just, it's, it's, it's their life's mission to always be right. But some people, it's an, it's an obsession. And other people, they lust for stuff. Okay? They're materialistic. They, people lust for money. In fact, Paul tells Timothy in, in his first letter, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving or lust that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O oh man, flee from these things. You see, all of us are bent on desiring and wanting and lusting after things that we ought not want to. Things that are destructive, things that are sinful, things that lead to a life centered on other things besides God. And Paul says to flee from these things. Run from these things. Escape from these things. It can actually be translated as run for safety. It's kind of the idea. That's the step that we as Christians absolutely need to master. That is the step that we need to take to ourselves over and over and over again. 
So when you see that cute person at work and they drop by for no reason just to chat, you don't need to walk. You need to run. You need to flee. When you're struggling to manage your finances and you catch yourself in the middle of the mall and everything's on sale, you need to flee. Okay? When you're battling an alcohol addiction and you're with your friends and they start drinking, you don't need to hang out and chill. You don't need to just kind of like wait and see how things go. You need to flee. You need to get out of there. Whatever the vice, whatever the struggle, whatever the temptation, whatever the sin, Paul doesn't say stand there and try to resist. He says flee. In fact, that's a great way to practice self-control is to, to, to flee, to get out of there, to get away from the situation. I mean, if you're on the diet and there's a chocolate cake in your refrigerator calling your name, run to the refrigerator, grab that cake and throw it in the bottom of the trash can outside. That's how you take care of that. You're trying to keep yourself pure, right? But there's images that keep popping up on your phone or on your computer and you're tempted to look at things you shouldn't look at. Flee, turn the device off. Delete the app. Call your friend. Tell them, hey, there's stuff that's, that's popping up and I don't want to look at this stuff, all right? There's stuff I'm battling with. Get an accountability partner. Get an accountability software. Whatever you have to do, you must flee from that lust. That is how you practice self-control. That is how you escape the power of sin. That is how you put to death the sins in your life. That is how you demonstrate that you were different from the rest of the world. That is how you demonstrate that you belong to God if you flee from your sin. We're to flee from idolatry, we're to flee from greed and materialism. We're to flee from sexual immorality. And we're to flee from the youthful lusts and passions. You see, we have become very tolerant of our sin. But we need to become intolerant with the presence of sin and temptation in our lives. We need to become intolerant to our own tendency to kind of wink at our sin. As Christ followers, we need to learn to love what God loves and we need to learn to hate what God hates. And God, my friends, hates sin. He hates pride. He hates greed. He hates slander and gossip. He hates dishonesty. He hates injustice. He hates every single form of idolatry. He hates every form of sexual immorality, including pornography, adultery, fornication, molestation, rape, and even homosexuality. God hates all that sin. He hates it all because it is vile and it's destructive and it leads our heart away from God and ultimately it leads our lives away from God. That's why Paul says flee. You don't mess around with sin. You don't dabble in it. You don't flirt with it. You flee from it. You run for your life. Escape. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. All temptation, you understand, all temptation is common. Your temptation isn't something unique to you. It's not unique to you in your situation. It is common. Other people have faced it, okay? But Paul says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God always provides a way of escaping temptation. And the vast majority of the time, the way we escape temptation and sin is to flee. You see, we delude ourselves when we think that we can handle it. You think, we, we think that we can, you know, we can do what the world does. 
that we can party with the rest of the world and flirt like the rest of the world and that we can, that we can participate in the same things like the rest of the world. That somehow we're going to be able to withstand the temptations simply by just being tough enough. But we're deluding ourselves. And Paul says to flee for a reason. And notice what he's talking about here. It says, he says to Timothy, a prominent pastor, okay? That's who he's talking to. You understand? When he says to flee, he's not talking to, you know, just, he's talking to a pastor. And think about this. Timothy is one step removed from Jesus. Paul actually encountered Jesus. He met him. And Timothy, because of his time with Paul, probably met Peter and James and John, probably even Jesus' own mom. All right, they were all witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul's telling that guy, you need to flee from sexual immorality. Let me just tell you, if that guy needs to flee from temptation, then this guy needs to flee from temptation. And if this guy needs to flee from temptation, you absolutely need to flee and do the same thing. If we are ever going to be the pillar of truth as a church, that God is calling us to be, then we need to practice the self-control by mastering the art of fleeing from temptation. It will not matter. Hear me. It will not matter how many Bible verses you memorize. It will not matter how many times we come here together and sing songs. It will not matter how much religious stuff we do. If we don't learn to flee, we will continually fall again and again and again back into sin. And we will, we will darken the light of the church that shines in the, in the dark world. And we begin to undermine and weaken this pillar of truth that God is calling us to be. Because all of this has a purpose. All of it. Doctrine, right action, contrast, godliness, self-control, fleeing from, from, from sin. Even your own salvation has a larger purpose. And Paul talks about that purpose <clears throat> In the last part of this text, he tells Timothy, he goes, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Again, have nothing to do with discussions, you know, um, discussions about, you know, uh, false doctrines. Um, they don't help and they just lead to unfruitful arguments. But Paul says, verse 24, and the Lord's servant's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponent with gentleness, and then he gives us the purpose right here of this whole text. He says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the, of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. See, Paul says that the purpose for all of this is to help other people to come to the truth and be saved. The purpose of sound doctrine, the purpose of living right, the purpose of you standing out in the dark world, the purpose of your godliness, the purpose of self-control, the purpose of fleeing from sin, the purpose of the church being the pillar of truth in a world that's running away from real objective truth. The purpose of all that is to help other people to come to their senses and actually hear the truth so they can repent and be saved. That's the purpose. That's the purpose of all this. That's the reason why you were saved in the first place. Most people believe they just get saved because God wanted to save them. And it's true. God wants to save you. But here's what you have to understand. God wanted to save you to also reach those through you that he can reach in your life. That's why every Christian is called to be a part of the Great Commission. That's why every Christian is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why every Christian is to be a living testimony of the goodness of God. That's why... 
We say God loves you just as you are, but he loved you too much to leave you that way. We've been saved for so much bigger. That's why every Christian is to be a part of the church. That's why the church is to be the pillar of truth in the world. God, through your life and the lives of all those around you in the church, is working to open the eyes of others in the world who, like you, used to be in rebellion to God. God wants to work through your life so that others will see the hope of Christ. And because of that, they would come to know the truth and repent and be saved. That is the purpose. That is why the word of God is so important. That is why doctrine is so important. That is why right action in your life is so important. That's why godliness and self-control and standing in stark contrast with the rest of the world is so important. And that's why you fleeing from youthful passions and idolatry and sexual immorality and materialism is so important. It is a matter of life and death. People in your life are going to either receive or reject Christ based on how you live and behave as a pillar of truth in the world around you. You are directly and indirectly responsible for how other people view the truth about Jesus. That is why all of this is so important. And that's why we as a church need to grow and begin to demand that our lives and our actions begin to confirm the image and conform to the image of Christ. That's why we as as a church need to demand that those who follow Christ take seriously things like godliness and discipleship and, and personal holiness. That's why we as a church, the time has come that we will need to begin to cut away infections of apathy and false conversion and that we that we need to cut away those who refuse to follow sound doctrine into right action, that we may need to, to cut away those who are in willful, open rebellion to God and, and are undermining the pillar of truth by their lives and by their very actions. And as, so as I said in week one, it is time. It is time for this church to grow. It is time for us to mature. It is time for us to firmly build ourselves up on the foundation of the word of God and to learn and to defend and to believe and to teach sound doctrine. And as a result of that, it is time for us to embrace godliness and self-control and flee from our sin so we can live inwardly and outwardly in a way that lives high up for the entire world to see the truth of God and his will for all of us. The time has come for you and me to come together as God's people as the body of Christ, as the church of the living God, and be the pillar of absolute truth in a relativistic world. The only question that's left to answer after all that we've talked about is will you do your part? Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. And... I come to your word again and again, convicted of my own shortcomings. And I just pray, Lord, that as I communicate your word, that you'd make it so in my own heart and that I would practice exactly what I preach, that I would would flee from the things in my life that could cause me to stumble, that I wouldn't dabble with them, I wouldn't you know, pretend like I can handle them, that I would flee, that I would run, that I would put up a hedge, that I would make a clear distinction 
in my life in those other things. Not because I'm trying to be a prude and not because I'm trying to be weird, but I want to live wholly different for you. Because ultimately, I want people to come to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't want to be a stumbling block in the world and the lives of other people. I want to be someone who glorifies you and that glory, not because of me, because of you would radiate, radiate under the world and people would be attracted to that and they would turn and believe and be saved, Father. That's the thing. My heart breaks for the millions and millions of people who are rejecting you and they're rejecting you on false philosophical grounds. They haven't even, don't even know your word, even know who you are. There are many who call themselves Christians who are rejecting the foundational truth that your word is your word. And they're leading people to their slaughter. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would just take seriously this calling to be the church, to be the light bearers, to be the the pillar that holds up, lifts up for for the world to see the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ and who you are. And we would stand firmly on your spoken inerrant word, Lord, that we would rest on that, that we would hold on to it, Lord. We'd make it the center of our doctrine and the center of our life. And all of us, Lord, would glorify you in all that we do. And I pray for those who are here, that you'd bless and protect them, that you'd meet their needs. And those who are not here, that you would give them traveling mercies to get them back here. And I pray, Father, that in this congregation, you'd raise up a people who are just passionate for your name and for your word, and who are willing to go out and share unashamed their hope in Jesus Christ. We love you. We praise you in Christ's name we pray. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.